If you have your Bible, you can flip to Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10, which is the last verse of chapter 3. And we're going to read this morning all the way through the end of the book, which is just 11 more verses in chapter 4, and see that this part of the story typically gets not forgotten, but it gets overwhelmed by the first three chapters and all the amazing miracles and stories. But the reality is, is that Jonah chapter 4 really is the capstone of the book, and it teaches us the over arching reality. And so what we'll see from Jonah this morning is this uh, testimony of God's amazing mercy. And we're going to see really an incredibly ugly side of this believer named Jonah. So let me read God's word to us and then we'll pray again. The Bible says this in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Verse 1 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said... It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. Apparently, I don't either. That's my right hand, left. And also much cattle. End of the book. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Lord, we submit to you and to your word. We pray that you would remind us of our sin and remind us of your mercy this morning. Draw us towards you in every way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Three ways this morning from this passage that the Scripture really invites us to walk in Jonah's shoes and experience God's mercy, maybe in a fresh way for each of you this morning. Number one is this from uh, chapter 3 and verse 10. Number one, God relents and shows mercy to the repentant city of Nineveh. God relents and and shows mercy. God mercifully uh, sends his prophet Jonah. And Jonah 3.10, one more time, says, when God saw what they did, Nineveh, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, 
and he did not do it. It is a mercy of God that he sent his prophet Jonah to this legitimately wicked city of Nineveh, and Jonah now finally, after all of the to-do that you saw in the video, finally preaches and says, it's the shortest prophetic message in all of the 12 uh, minor prophets, he says in eight words, uh, he says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And Jonah chapter 3 tells us that the people from the least to the greatest, in fact, all the way up to the king of Nineveh, that they believed God, that they humbled themselves, that they confessed and turned from their sins, that they, in fact, prayed and fasted for mercy from God, and God applied that mercy. Can you imagine the president of the United States doing the same thing? falling to his knees, confessing his own sins and the sins of the country. Can you imagine the nation of the United States out in the streets, publicly admitting their wickedness, their sin, their wrong ways, and crying out to Jesus for mercy? Can you imagine just our city doing that? Or just your school or your place of business that every single person drops to their knees in prayer? says, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Save me. I want you to be Lord of my life. The gospel is real. The power of the word of God is real. Salvation was real then and it's real today. And God can and continues to save people every single day. But our prayer ought to be, Lord, let it be so once again in my nation, in my city, in my home. The gospel of Jesus is not changed. And in response to the Ninevites' repentance, God chose to, quote, relent of the judgment that Nineveh deserved. They deserved it. And God shows mercy that they don't deserve. And so Jonah angrily in in verse 2, the second half of verse 2, says to God, that's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. That's why he got in the boat and ran the other direction. For I knew that you're a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. The verb here, relent, if you go back to the Hebrew, is a word naham, N-A-C-H-A-M. That's the, the Hebrew word there. It's the same word used in the Old Testament for repent. Relent, repent. Same word in Hebrew. We have several places like this in Scripture that say that God relented, and we also have several places in Scripture that say that God does not relent or that God does not change. I'll give you another example. So 1 Samuel 15, 35, the Bible says that God regretted making Saul king. The word regretted is naham, relent, repent, regret. The Lord regretted making Saul king of Israel. But six verses earlier in 1 Samuel 15, the Bible says, God is not a man that he should have regret. Nacham. What you've got here is what we call in Scripture a paradox or an apparent contradiction. Not if we study an actual contradiction, but a paradox, an apparent contradiction. See, the Bible teaches throughout Old Testament and New that God, one of his attributes is his unchangeability, that he does, or his immutability would be another word that we use to describe that characteristic of God. If he changes, he is not God. And so uh, Numbers 23, 19 picks up that, says this, God is not man 
that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind? Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I yield to my theological friend, John Frame, who wrote the Introduction to Christian Belief, and he says this. Hang on for a, a lengthy quote here. It is not a mere game with words to say that relenting is a part of God's unchangeable divine nature. In Jeremiah 18, God indicates that such relenting is part of his general way of working. Quote, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hands, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up, break down, and destroy it, And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Uh, Frame picks up, God compares himself to a potter and Israel to clay, a radical image of God's sovereignty. God's relenting is his sovereign decision. Should not Jonah then Uh, he says, have been denounced as a false prophet, right? Because Jonah comes and says, destruction's coming, destruction doesn't come. No, because God had revealed that such prophecies have implied conditions. What Jonah said to Nineveh was really, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed unless you repent of your sins and turn to the Lord. Jonah himself understood that, Jonah 4.2 that God might forgive Nineveh despite the apparently categorical language of the prophecy. The Ninevites understood it too, and we see that in Jonah 3, 9. When we look at this book, we, we think of the book of Jonah, I think most often, as a story about a miracle. There was a big fish, a whale, a sea monster, and this thing swallows up Jonah and he survives for three days. And to be sure, it is a miracle. And yes, I do believe that that story literally truly happened. And yes, it absolutely was a miracle. But we sort of think of that as the greatest miracle. But listen carefully, the greatest miracle in the story of Jonah is that 120,000 people who were God-haters prior to that moment turned in saving faith to God and were saved. This is easily the greatest mass conversion in human history. This is an incredible moment. So don't get too worked up about the fish. Recognize that thousands of people in the same day heard the word of the Lord and believed and were saved. And we will see those Ninevites in heaven one day. It's an amazing, amazing miracle. Because here's the deal. Nineveh was bad people. And to be clear... So all we got here today is bad people saved by God's grace. Outside of God's mercy in our lives, we are all bad people. Now, if you were with us back in November, we did the book of Nahum, and Nahum is also a prophetic book speaking judgment specifically against Nineveh. And I mentioned then what I'll mention now, Nineveh is remembered for probably the the worst violence and cruelty in the history of the ancient world known for flaying alive their enemies, cutting off their heads, burning people alive, and killing children in the streets. They were known for centuries for plundering the the neighboring nations, for worshiping demons, using witchcraft and sorcery. 
And the very next generation after this story here in, in, uh, with Jonah, the very next generation is the generation of Nineveh, the nation of Assyria, that will wipe out Israel. In 722 BC, they will wipe out Israel and take them into their first exile. These are not nice people. And God did fulfill the promise made by Jonah because in 612 BC, Nineveh is destroyed, never to be occupied again. But this generation that God used Jonah to speak the truth of God's word to, they listened to the preached word of God. They repented of their sins and they trusted in God to show mercy. And so hear my voice carefully this morning. God is the God of second chances. God is the God of 10th and 20th and 30th chances. God is a God of mercy and of patience and of forgiveness while also being a God of truth and perfect justice. Peter says that God is not wanting anyone to, de- to perish, but desiring that all should come to repentance. Now, you would think that Jonah, who sees this, this scene and is a part of this, would be pumped out of his mind. If I'm Jonah, I'd be like, they listened to my sermon. Yes! They're, they're turning to Jesus for salvation. Their lives are being changed. People are being ripped out of hell and, and are going to spend eternity with heaven. You would think he would be so excited, and yet he is a crank. He is a believer whose response to God's mercy is negative, shocking. Number two, and we see this in chapter four, verses one through five, that Jonah actually despises God's mercy for Nineveh. It's a terrifying thought. Jonah despises God's mercy for Nineveh. Jonah 4.1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, And he was angry. You ever been mad at God? Safe place. You don't have to put your hand up. You ever been mad at God? You ever been frustrated with God's will? God has brought this to pass. I don't like it. I think we've all been there. I'm sure some of us are there right now today. Have you ever felt like it was hard to forgive someone? They did such and such. It was not right. I don't want to forgive them. I know that God wants me to forgive them, but I don't want to forgive them. Well, you're not alone because here Jonah is angry that God didn't do what Jonah wanted him to do. The the thought process here that Jonah explains here is basically this. Jonah's saying, I obeyed, at least on the surface level. So God, you should give me what I want. Are you ever tempted to think that way? As if, if we do what God says, that God is some sort of a vending machine, as he, he is required then to obey our deepest whims. I have what really is good news for you. God is God, and you are not. This is not the BK, and you cannot have it your way. Anyone? Okay. Thank you. God knows what is for our good so much better than you and I do. But Jonah is unwilling to submit to the will of God in his life. Another thing that we see from Jonah, Jonah actually tries to use the scripture to justify his disobedience. 
his blatant disobedience, and actually uses the scripture to try and prove God wrong. Beloved, don't do that. He says, that is why I ran to Tarshish, because I knew you were merciful. He's quoting Exodus 34, 6 and 7, but he's not praising God for his mercy. He's saying, God, that's what you said. You said you're merciful, so why would you send me to declare this message of judgment? Jonah is saying, see, God, really, I'm the consistent one, and God, you're being inconsistent. I think that's a lot of us are there where when our lives don't go the way that we think that they should go, we will inevitably disobey and we'll sort of justify that disobedience in our own hearts. And sometimes we'll even kind of grab the scripture and twist the scripture to make us feel like, well, what I'm doing is really okay. Do you know who else took scripture and twisted it to make what they're doing sound okay? Satan. Satan. Uh, many times, but in particular, when he's trying to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ, he brings the scripture. He twists, he manipulates, misuses the scripture, and Jesus immediately sets him straight and says, no, no, the scripture is true. You are a liar, and I will obey what God says. It's not a bad roadmap for us when temptation comes either. But let me say this to us. The Bible is not there for you to scrutinize. The Bible is not there for you to criticize. The Bible is not there for you to selectively cut out the parts that you don't like and emphasize the parts that you do. The Bible is not there for you to use it as a weapon to inflict on somebody else to prove why you are right and why they are wrong. The Bible is not there for you to justify yourself and your sin, and it's not there for you to glorify yourself. The Bible is there for two reasons. The Bible is there to reveal to us clearly our own sinfulness. And out of that reality, the Bible is there second to reveal to us the grace and the mercy of Jesus that we can experience for the first time and for the remainder of our lives. That is what the Bible is for. Jonah doesn't like it. We see two of Jonah, that Jonah has this sort of ungodly desire to see the judgment, justice, and destruction of others. Guys, our culture loves to talk about justice as long as it's for somebody else, right? Um, We all have a little bit of Jonah in us because the truth is, is when we have something against somebody, we don't really want to see them get away with it. We don't really want to see them get mercy. We want to see them get what they deserve. It's in our hearts. I would say to you, be discerning of movements and be discerning of people, be discerning of Christians who have an unhealthy twisting of God's perfect attribute of justice and exalt their own version of justice and ignore God's perfect attribute of mercy. God does both perfectly every single day. Then we look at Jonah and we see that, uh, that it gets worse. In verse 3, Jonah says, I'd rather die than see my enemies receive mercy. He actually does this twice because it's really what he's saying when they throw him out of the boat the first time. Just kill me, Lord. I mean, it's hilarious and it's tragic all at the same time. He even doubles down in verse nine with God when God's sort of giving him a chance to like work through what he's saying. No, no, God, just kill me. It would just be, it would be better. better. What a pity party. Like what a total pout fest that 
Jonah is acting like a, a toddler here with God. But before we totally just judge Jonah ourselves, remember that his frustration, his vendetta against these people is legitimate in that they really have done awful things to his people. We don't know, the scriptures doesn't tell us, but maybe there were personal experiences that he had. He has reasons to be upset. They were evil. And so the question for us is, who are you bitter towards? I'm not asking whether it's justified or not. I'm asking who do you choose to continue in a spirit of bitterness towards? Or maybe it's not outright bitterness, but who have you given up on? Family, friends. I've tried to tell them about Jesus, but they won't listen. I've given up on them. And it might not be as outright as Jonah's attitude here, but the heart of it is, is the same. Or for what person or what group of people have you usurped God's role as judge and decided that you ought to be in that role yourself towards them? See, Jonah doesn't grasp mercy for other people because he has forgotten how much mercy God has shown him personally. And that brings us to number three. God teaches Jonah to remember his mercy and therefore show mercy. This is verses 6 through 10. God asks three questions in this ridiculously funny, I think, with the plant and the wind and the worm. But God is trying to get at Jonah's heart. First, God asks, do you have any right to be angry? We can read the story and go, clearly, Jonah has no right to be angry. But Jonah thinks that he does. God's question here is really to emphasize, listen, Jonah, I'm happy with the mercy that I've shown, but you're ticked off about it. Jesus says in Luke chapter 15, verse 7, describing God's character and the heart of God, he says, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus tells us uh, three stories in a row in Luke chapter 15, revealing the heart of God. The prodigal son is, is the chief among those stories. Jonah is the older brother here in this moment. And Jonah continues to have a pity party. He builds a shelter. I'm sure it was very nice. And waits to see if maybe Nineveh will still get destroyed. He's just holding on. Maybe God's going to get him. Uh, R. Kent Hughes makes three observations about Jonah's attitude here. He says, first of all, Jonah quits. He quits on the mission of God, really for the second time. He also says Jonah becomes a spectator rather than a contributor. And he says, thirdly, Jonah withdrew. He withdrew. Meaning, this is the mindset of, if things get too messed up in my city, I'll just move away and go somewhere else. This is the heart of Jonah at this moment. And God shows Jonah mercy. There's the heart of God. If you're God, don't you just want to be like, Jonah, stop it. <laughs> my daughter thinks I'm funny. That won't last, so I'm going to soak that in well, as long as it lasts. <clears throat> Um, God shows Jonah mercy. He doesn't have to. And the first mercy is he sends this plant to, to, show, to give Jonah some shade. So notice here, Jonah is finally happy, exceedingly happy, says the Bible, for the first time in the entire book. Read through all four chapters. Jonah is never happy until this moment when God gives him a little shade tree. So when God commissioned Jonah to go preach to Nineveh, he didn't like that. When God sends a storm, when Jonah ran away, he didn't like that. 
When God sends a big fish to swallow him and save him and give him time to look at his own heart, Jonah didn't like it. When God gives him a second chance to preach, Jonah didn't like it. When God shows amazing mercy to Nineveh, Jonah still doesn't like it. But give me a shade tree and Jonah is exceedingly happy. Why? Because in Jonah's mind, he's like, thank you, God, you finally did something for me. How arrogant. How ridiculous. That shows that he is completely clueless about how much mercy God has shown to him. Let us not be the same way that we forget how much God's mercy has been poured out for for me personally. Then God sends the worm. Love that. (laughs) Here's a worm, eats the plant, plant gone. And oh, by the way, uh, I'm going to send this hot east wind to make you uncomfortable, so uncomfortable that, that Jonah literally passes out. Here's what Hebrews 12, 6 says. It says, the Lord disciplines those he loves. It's a mercy. The worm and the hot sun, the discomfort, the punishment is another mercy of God. Do not despise the Lord's discipline in your life. So second, God asks, uh, second question, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? The implied answer is no, you have no right to be angry about the vine. And what God is doing is he's teaching Jonah, Jonah, I am sovereign. I decide when the plant comes and when the plant goes. And as the Bible says, mercy, my mercy triumphs over judgment. And Jonah, I want you to experience that reality again in your own life. And so the third question that God asks is, should I not be concerned about the great city of Nineveh? It's a great question. So now God goes to the heart of the matter. Jonah, should I not care? Should I not show mercy to this huge city of Nineveh? Now, if you've got your Bible in front of you, you opened up your app, whatever, what is the last word in the book of Jonah? Cattle. What? Is that not a little strange? There's this amazing crescendo of God's mercy, and the last word is cattle. If we had any discussion about cattle, any bovines, none. What is God doing here? Notice that God doesn't end by talking to Jonah any more about the adult population of the city, who undoubtedly deserve judgment for their wickedness. God is trying to get at Jonah's heart, and so he raises two categories. Cattle who are innocent, they didn't do anything to anybody. And he says, consider the whole population, 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. Well, what kind of people don't know their right hand from their left? Children don't know their right hand from their left. Now, spiritually, none of us know our right hand from our left outside of God's grace. But he is saying to Jonah, can you not like squeeze just an ounce of mercy out of your heart, Jonah, if you even just think about the kids and the cows? And the book ends. The end. Question unanswered. Why do you think that God drops the mic at the end of Jonah? Because he wants us to ask the same question. Are you willing to love people the way that God loves people? Perfect truth and perfect love is what Jesus comes and does. Are you willing to love people the way that I love people. That's God's question to us this morning. Are you willing to do that?
Nineveh is a merciful warning to all of us who have never asked Jesus to be our personal Lord and Savior. Nineveh shows us the reality of God's judgment and justice and says, don't miss the opportunity. Heed the warning just like Nineveh heeded the warning to come to Jesus for his grace. Luke chapter 11 and verse 30, Jesus says, as Jonah was assigned to Nineveh, so the Son of Man is assigned to this generation to repent. As Jonah was a warning to Nineveh, Jesus himself stands as a warning to you to turn to him. Turn to him and admit your sinfulness, admit your need for him. Because here's the bad news. Again, we are sinners. We deserve God's judgment, his punishment, his justice, every single one of us. We deserve an eternity separated from God. And here is the good news. Jesus has stepped in already. He has taken on all of the evil deeds that you have committed, and he took the punishment for that on the cross for all those who will believe in him and accept that free gift. You must come to him. You must admit your sin, and you must ask for his forgiveness and his new life. Jesus was dead in the tomb for three days, just like Jonah sat in the belly of the whale for three days. But what Jesus did was he rose from the dead three days later, and he conquered sin, Satan, and death one time so that all may have a way to know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. And so the reality is, is the message of Nineveh is turn from your sins and turn to Jesus as Lord and Savior today. Believer, Jonah is a cautionary tale for you and I as well. Because Jonah forgot about the mercy that God had shown to him personally. Jonah should have died in the stormy sea. He deserved to die for his rebellion, but he didn't. And so in the moment here, Jonah is not prepared to accept it when Nineveh gets mercy because he's forgotten how much mercy he's experienced himself. So I would say this to you, if you are camped out, hunkered down, living in isolation, and you can't wait for the second coming of Jesus so that all those bad people out there can get what they deserve, let me humbly and lovingly reintroduce you to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus came for sinners of which I am the worst. That's what the apostle Paul says. As he matured in his relationship with Christ, that was how he explained the gospel. Jesus Christ came for sinners of whom I am the chief sinner. Man, just by asking you another, another question that you probably know the answer to. Who wrote the book, humanly speaking, who wrote the book of Jonah? It's an easy question. Jonah. Gold star, everyone. Jonah wrote the book of Jonah. What you see then is a believer who has matured later on in life, who wants to tell a testimony of God's mercy and admit, confess publicly his own sin. And so the story of Jonah is him admitting his own judgmentalism, his own self-righteousness, his own legalism, his own prejudices, and saying to us that sometime later in his life, by God's grace, he got it. He's writing this story for you to see, don't do it the way I did. Believer, don't, 
live the way that I did. Unbeliever, don't miss the opportunity and the invitation. I think Jonah lived the rest of his life as one who was amazed by God's grace. And so should we do as well. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your kindness, your mercy, where you don't give us what we deserve, your grace, where you give us what we don't deserve. And Father, we willingly, happily come before you this morning and just admit we are sinners and we do not deserve your kindness. But God, we are amazing, amazingly grateful for what you have done. You took the initiative. Father, there was nothing that I did, no, no beauty in me that, that you said, I should go after that person. But simply out of love, out of kindness, you have brought salvation to the world. Father, I pray that, that anyone who has never fallen to their knees in their own hearts and said, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. What I have done is wrong and who you are is right. When I lead my own life, it, it doesn't go the way that it should. I make mistakes. I sin. I hurt people. And Lord, I want to do it your way. I want to follow you. I'm not going to carve up your word. I'm going to submit to you. Forgive me, Father, I'm a sinner. Save me. And, and God, thank you that you promise, Lord, that there are testimony after testimony in this room and around the world of people that you have saved by your grace. And we pray that you would add to that number every day. We pray that in this church and in this city, in this state, in this country and around the world, Lord, that you would add to that number every day. People who will humble themselves, turn from their sin and turn to you. And Lord, we recognize that it is your Mercy, it is your kindness, the Bible says, that leads us, that draws us to repentance. And Lord, as believers, Lord, forgive us for what we have been self righteous, legalistic, judgmental, carried a grudge, remained angry at someone, remained bitter at someone, refused to forgive, maybe done the right things on the outside, but in, on the inside in our hearts, the honest truth is we don't really want to submit to your will and your way. Forgive us, Father. Give us a new heart. Fill us with mercy afresh, we pray. Help us to love our city. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and worship the gracious King.